0: This morning, I am going to take a leap and preach to you two sermons this morning. There you go. All the congregation said, oh, okay. So uh, we are going to look at these four one. But we our second sermon this morning, but we're not going to go by this outline this morning, okay? Uh, how many of you heard of the Protestant Reformation? Raise your hand. About everybody, right? Uh, I hope you know what it's about. If not, yeah. we're going to kind of give a little review. Yeah. Just keep yeah. too excited. I get too excited and then it reverberates. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to... Sermon number one has to do with the theological implications of the Protestant Reformation, which, by the way, we celebrate on October 31st. Okay? October 31st. All right? And reason being, we'll get to it in just a minute. But that's going to be sermon number one, and it's entitled, Why We Should Never Forget the Protestant Reformation. There's reasons for why we should never forget it. Sermon number two is an introduction to the second half of Ephesians, and it's entitled, God's Call for a Holy Walk. God's Call to a Holy Walk. And it's going to be an overview of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. And so that'll be a short sermon in itself, and next week we will come back and look at our outline about our walk, it's a unified walk, sort Okay, so uh, let's open up our Bibles to Ephesians. So we're going to be reading out of Ephesians, and I selected these purpose of these verses with intent. Here, we're going to read verses two, eight, and nine in chapter four, verse one, together. So, open up the book of Ephesians, and we're going to read together chapter two eight and nine and then chapter four verse one. So let's stand together to read of God's word. Chapter two verse eight and nine. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, encourage you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Let's pray together. Father, it is the purpose, the intent of this preacher to bring together grace and works in its proper place because when we do not do that, we preach and present a false gospel. So, Father, give me the grace to be articulate and to present Your grace in Your mercy, the light of Your word. Have mercy on me, and uh, Lord God, give me clarity of thought and mind, also in explaining the Protestant Reformation, and also which is two eight nine, and also Ephesians four one. Because not only do you save us by grace, but you want us to walk in that grace. And there's nothing short of a worthy walk. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Alright. At the core of the Protestant Reformation are two truths. There's more than that, but it can kind to of summarized into two truths, okay? Here they are. Scripture alone would be truth number one. Okay the Protestant Reformation reestablished the word of God as the authority of the church that's why we like and love what God did through these these Protestant men like Luther Calvin Zwingli it was through them ordinary men by the way they all had their issues they were sinners okay saved by grace but God used them to reestablish the word of God as the authority of the church and number two, that led to a rediscovery of the gospel itself, specifically justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Okay? I want to show you in just a few minutes why that's important, even in particular today as it was Back then, I like to look at the first one—the reestablishment of Scripture being sole authority of the church. Simply put, that's what drove the Reformation. That's what drove the Reformation. The Bible was shared authority. In other words, the Pope and councils, along with the Bible, along with tradition, collectively became the authority of the church. And when that happens, guess what happens? the Word of God begins to get pushed aside over time. And though we pay lip service to it, though the Roman Catholic Church paid lip service to it, it was the Pope and the religious leaders, they're the ones that drove and became really the authority of the church. And this happened over a period of hundreds and hundreds of years. Some began to really see the establishment of the Roman Catholic Church around 600 AD, but we're talking the 14 to 1500s here when we talk about the Protestant Reformation. So what Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and and all these other men, which I'm not really going to get into the historical figures of this, okay? It's more of the theological implications. But what they grew up in was this apostate church that had left the Bible as being the sole rule and authority of the church. And it dominated Europe. It dominated the church. This is what the Roman Catholicism did. This system that they had developed over years. Steve Lawson writes this about preaching. Because when the Word of God is no longer your sole authority, it changes how and what you preach. So with the the reestablishment of the Bible being the authority of church, it had a profound effect on preaching. But let me tell you what preaching was before this reestablishment. Steve Lawson writes, Prior to the pivotal time, pulpits were filled with mythical stories about saints and martyrs. Sermons hailed legendary accounts of supposed miracles. I heard about this miracle over here, what's happening over there, and that would be the sermon, so to speak. Discourses were full of quotations from ancient Greek philosophers, such as Aristotle and Seneca. Preachers were more concerned with what the Pope and the Church Father said than what the Bible said. End of quote. And so, when, when you hear these men, these Protestants who rose up and began to say wait a minute, wait a minute, what we're seeing you do, church, it's wrong it's not, it doesn't come from the Bible we've we got to reestablish the Bible as our authority, and that, and what these reformers wanted to do up front was reform the Roman Catholic Church but the Roman Catholic Church authorities would have nothing to do with it whatsoever except maybe kill you over this issue or put you in prison as a result because their authority was being threatened so let me ask the question before I go further. Why this day? Why October 31st, which is just Tuesday, okay? Tuesday. Well, he had this monk, Brother Martin. We'll call him Martin Luther. Okay, he's a brother. He had issues, however. He was a monk and he was a scholar. But during this time, he was discovering in the Bible. He he, he was going back to the Bible and going. The you know, leadership, the Pope and the cardinals and religious leaders and the Pope were saying this. But I'm reading Habakkuk two seven. I'm reading Romans one seventeen. I'm reading Galatians three four, and it says the just shall live by faith. And here I'm being told we do what we live by works. Here the Bible says to be just before God, you don't you can't work your way there. You trust. It's because of trust. Okay? Because of the object of our trust, because of Christ. And yet, I'm over here being a monk, and I'm going through all these rigorous works and these things. I'm trying to be perfect and pure, hoping that I will gain merit before God. But the Bible doesn't say that. We've got a problem here. It was during this struggle in Luther's life that in Germany, there was these, what do you want to call them? This this practice called the giving of indulgences, indulgences for sale. Let me explain what that was. The Roman Catholic Church had developed purgatory. Now, what's purgatory? A purgatory was a place where once you died, you went there, and you finished working off all the bad things you did before you get to heaven. Well, then they set up this system called indulgences, where you pay. Well, the more you paid, the less time you had to spend in purgatory. Or even to the extent where if you paid a lot, you would even, uh, your loved ones would spend less time in purgatory. Are you with me? And this just broke Luther's heart. And so, he's in Wittenberg, he's in Germany, and All Souls Day is November 1st. That's, that'll be our Wednesday coming up. Now, All Souls Day is this, where they recognized and they honored all those in purgatory. But not yet got to heaven. And it would happen to be on that day in his life that a bunch of relics were going to be presented and laid out there in Wittenberg, where he lived. And, and, and what they were saying is, you come and you meditate on these relics that we're going to set up, and, and, and that will be like an indulgence. You'll spend less time in purgatory if you come and look at these. And that just, that just got to Luther. He couldn't stand it. It broke his heart. And so what he did is he got his pen and, or his quill actually, and he wrote out 95 pieces. Okay, against the indulgences, against these practices, and he nailed it on the door of the Church of Whitburn. And the reason why he did it is because he wanted to engage debate. He wanted the people to debate. He's going, hey, I'm reading this over here in the Bible, and yet, where is this our practice, the Roman Catholic Church's practice? And by the way, that was his church, right? That was his church. He was a monk, the Roman Catholic Church. So he felt it was part of his church that he belonged to. But he saw its problems, major problems. And so, he intended to spark a debate. But it sparked, over time, a whole lot more than that, didn't it? One of Luther's 95 pieces simply declared this, quote, The church's true treasure is the gospel of Jesus Christ, end of quote. You see, that alone really is the meaning of Reformation Day, of the Protestant Reformation. It is the reestablishment of the Bible as the church's authority. And I don't want to say this. It is the rediscovery of the gospel itself, excuse me, the reestablishment of the Bible, the rediscovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ, specifically justified to be just before a holy God, Is by God's grace, faith alone, Christ alone. Got that? So why is it important to establish the Bible as our authority? Because it keeps our eyes fixed and honed in on the gospel itself. To get off the word of God means to eventually get off the gospel. Right? Then we get off to other things. Experiences to validate our our salvation. Wrong. The charismatics, that's where they go. That's today, folks. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The Word of God, regardless of what you experience. It's what the Word of God tells us. It's thus saith the Lord. So that you can be grounded on a good day or a bad day. Now having said that, that's why we have the Reformation Day. The reason we single out the 31st of October is because that's when Luther nailed those that thesis on the door of Wittenberg, and it really sparked the Protestant Reformation. as the time that sparked where the church began to find its way back to the scriptures and to the gospel. And so there we have a reestablishment of the scriptures, number one. Because the reestablishment of the Bible means to reestablish the gospel itself. Because it is central to the life of the church, the foundation, the basis of our faith. The word of God is central to worship. Without the Bible, there is no faith. And let me go as far as to say this. Without the Bible, there is no church. It's our foundation. You rip out the foundation, the whole church crumbles. There is no church. Now, now let me pause here and explain for a minute what that really means practically today for us. It means studying the Word of God in the original languages, at least having one or two in the church that can that could do that. It's understanding the context. It means going too far in the depth of understanding the author's intent of a passage. It means explaining the passage verse by verse or sentence by sentence because we're here to understand and to know what God has to say, not the preacher. The preacher's role is not only to protect the congregation from the errors outside of the church, but maybe any errors that might exist within himself as well. Wow. He's explaining the passage in encouraging application. As Paul told Timothy, he said, Preach the word in season and out of season. You do this regardless of the congregation's desire. Whether they want it, like it or not. You be faithful to me, God says. Whether it shrinks your congregation or whether it grows your congregation. God says, that's my business. You preach my word. Not he said that to Timothy, but St. Timothy also said, I want you to accurately understand it, accurately divide it. Be diligent with it. Put much labor and pain into the understanding of my word, because it's my word. We often just use the word Bible. But beloved, as I'm often reminded, is a holy Bible. It's a holy word. It has no equal zero. No evil It stands alone. So they reestablished a scripture which led to a rediscovery of the gospel itself specifically again, justification by grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. In order to explain this, I want to do two things. I want to give you a brief illustration, explanation of the Roman Catholic system. We understand the context in which this happened. And then I want to give you three words that will give you great clarity about the gospel. Okay. First of all, the Roman Catholic system. Number, okay, let me just do this. going will be really simple. Okay? Here's where the Roman Catholic Church, and we go, there must be glare up here. I'm sorry, please. Sin. Okay? Merit. This is the Roman Catholic system that they developed over years. It's the traditions that they came up with. So, here's the problem. When the Roman Catholic Church talks about sin, they talk about the quantity of sins. All the individual sins. And if you count all the sins in your life, God bless you, because then you count to infinity. We can't count them all, right? But when they talked about it, they talked about sins as in the quantity. All right. They saw the problem to be sins, as in the number of them. So the solution became, wait a minute, we need develop a system of merits to counteract the sins. It's a little S. So they came up with like seven sacraments. Marriage being one. Okay. Uh, the Eucharist, which would be somewhat like the Lord's Supper. And, and there's seven of them. We don't need to know that. I'm not here for that. But they would merit. favor. you did these things, you checked them off. Some you did monthly or weekly, confession, okay, you had others, and then there would be merits, give it to your account, to this part of the ledger. And here's how the Roman Catholic system worked. The more you build this up, it would counteract your individual sins. So you wanted this to go up and this to go down, and after a while you'd be earning favor before God. Beloved, we are no difference. How often do we rely on our own traditions to earn favor before God? Well, if I do this, this, and this, that equals God shining his smile upon me. And we treat God that way. So they developed a system of seven sacraments and other things as well that help the merit side of the ledger So be like a ledger because they dealt with sins. But folks when Christ died on the cross it wasn't just for sins it was for our sin nature see the reason why the Protestants came along and said wait a minute it's not about sins as in quantity it's about a sin nature the reason why we have all these sins is because it's our nature to do so and God deals with the root not the fruit he deals with the the root of the problem my sin nature And he doesn't just deal with the fruit of the problem, the sins that I do, whether it be my wrong motives, wrong actions, bad words that come in my mouth, you know, etc., etc., etc. God deals with what? The heart. That's why when you get to the New Testament, it's about being a new creature with a new nature, which is where Paul is going in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Right? That's why I read chapter 2, 8, 9, Look what he says in verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. Made us alive together with Christ. We're new. We're made alive. We're new creatures. And then he says in 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved. It's by God's grace you're a new creature. Through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one they boast. In this system, in this Roman Catholic system of traditions, there is room to boast. And by the way, they know that not everyone's gonna have 100% here and zero here, so they created purgatory, a place where you can work off the rest of your demerits. Let's put it like that. Okay? They work the rest of your demerits off in purgatory. So when God looks at the ledger, he goes, hey, you did a lot of good here, you married a lot of my favor, but you, but it wasn't enough to cover all your demerits, so I'm going to set you in purgatory for a while so you can work off the rest of the demerits that your merits did not cover, so to speak. And that is the Roman Catholic system. That's a human system. I don't want to just pick on Roman Catholicism, but that's typically how religion in and of itself works. It's this man's way to God. And so with the reestablishment of the Scriptures, there's a reestablishment and a revitalization of the Gospel itself. Luther saw right through all this. And it was not easy for him. It wasn't easy for the others. He was brought up in the system. And he was then a monk as the system. But it was as he was going through Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 7, going through Galatians 3, 4, and Romans 1, 17, that he began to realize that this was not the way to be just before a holy God. Because we were dead in our sins. Because this way, this system does not take care of my nature. And besides, if I have a sin nature that's dead in my trespasses and sins, there's no way I can do anything to merit favor before a holy Is It's impossible. So guess what, beloved? When Christ died for you, when you put faith When you trust Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, you're saying, there's not a thing I can do. God, I throw myself upon your mercy seat. All of me. It's up to you, God. I trust in why you sent your son. I trust in your ability. I trust in your power. I trust in the work of your son. I trust in his righteousness, not mine. It's filthy rags. And so, I have nothing to boast about God. Beloved, that's so freeing. This is a yoke. This system is a yoke. It is a burden because, question, how do you know when you're there? How how much is enough? Because the Roman Catholics couldn't answer that question, they developed purgatory. Because there was no amount that was enough. And so they kept developing this system and it grew and it grew and it grew into this monstrosity, this burden. Do you want to live this way? Do we want to live this way? Do you want to live get up every day saying, okay, what else can I do to merit favor and then knowing that no matter how good you become, you still got to go to purgatory? Unless you're really arrogant and prideful and say, hey, hey I'm so good. i do not got to do this. Well, you already go better than that, don't you? Romans says, the just shall live by faith, not by works, not by my merits. See, if you don't get your understanding of sin right, you're not going to get the rest of it right. If you don't understand the bad news, you're not going to understand the good news. If you're not all that bad, then you're going to start depending on some works and what you can bear before God. But if you realize That the very core of a sin nature, so even in my best moment is still sinful before God. The best prayer I ever prayed is still tainted with sin. The best sermon I ever preached is still tainted with sin. I don't rely on my preaching. I don't rely on my prayers. I don't rely on evangelism to get to heaven. Those works don't get me there. They're simply thank yous to God for what he's already done for me. Three terms. Three terms I want you to understand. I think we'll really go a long way in understanding the gospel with great clarity. Number one, sin. Okay? Number two, alien. And number three, imputation. Okay. You're in seminary, right? No, you're in Bible college. You know, you know so one of us is one on one. I want you to get a grasp on three words. And don't be threatened by them. The first one's really, good. all three of them are really quite simple. Let me explain them. The term, Sin means simply to fall short of God's glory. You know, here's the mark, here's the bullseye, you know how it works in darts, and here's right here's the bullseye. No matter how hard we try, we're always going to miss the mark, because God's mark is perfection. You can't hit it. Okay? So, sin means I'm always going to miss the mark. I can never hit the bullseye, which God requires to be in His presence. Okay? Okay? So he said to his son, his son did what? Did the bullseye, didn't he? So I got to trust that Jesus is getting the bullseye, so to speak, okay? So that's what, that's what sin means. It means to fall short of God's glory. You're familiar with the term alien? It's the movie that came out in 1979, right? I checked that. 1979, it came out. a long time ago, I not it. it? It simply means foreign. I need something outside of me, someone outside of me To make the change. So the term aliens, the reformers use, finally, imputation, that means credit or deposit. Okay? We do that all the time. Right? I wish somebody would impute a million dollars to my bank account tomorrow morning. So do you. Okay? You get the picture? That's all that means. A little bit more clearly, let's first term look at sin. The problem with sins, the problem is not with sins, as a quantity, but sin as in my nature. Quality. Because I don't have a pure quality, all that I do is corrupt it. Makes sense? The true problem is not how many times I sin, but why I sin. I sin because it's natural for me to sin, because it's my very nature. Just because it's my nature, I can't add anything to this. In other words, because of my nature, this is how my merits look. It's a big fat zero. Because my sin nature cannot produce anything to merit God's favor. Zero. Right? Because it's my nature is the problem. I can produce nothing on the merit side. So when God looks at me, it's all of this my sin nature and all that it produces. And that's why we're deserving of the wrath of God. Right? picture of the cross. That brings us to the second word, alien. I need an alien righteousness. I need, uh, since I can't do this, I need someone to come here and, 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 and begin to give me this righteousness as eternal and infinite that satisfies God forever and ever and ever. I need a righteousness outside of myself. I cannot produce this. In order for God to show me favor, he needs to see me as perfect like himself. Are you with me? Are you with me? This is gospel. And so he sent his son to do just that. But not only that, he took care of So God looks at me. Wow. You have no, you have no demerits. You see, when Jesus came, he forgave you and cleansed you and wiped all that, leaving zero. So imputation is this. On the cross, you have this great exchange. This is the cross. Okay, the cross of Christ. So Jesus took your sin and your sin nature and he put it to his account and he took all his perfect righteousness, his perfect obedience, and he put it to your account. So when God looks at you, you have no demerits. You have the perfect righteousness of Christ. And beloved, that is the gift of God. That's what it means to be justified. Because you're trusting in what God did through him and in his son on the cross. This was revitalized and reestablished during Protestant Reformation because it, by and large, had been utterly lost. And so, folks, the preaching of the word is utterly important to the gospel. Because without the preaching of the word, we will lose the gospel. Without the preaching of the word, the church is lost. Amen? That is the meaning of the Protestant Reformation, really in a nutshell. This is the gospel of God's grace. The Reformation rediscovered the Bible. We established the word of God and revitalize the gospel once again. This leads us to Ephesians 4.1. Amen? Are you sleep, bro? Come on. All right, Ephesians chapter 4.1. Now you know what Tuesday's all about. It ain't about Halloween. I really don't care. We'll it did not offend anybody. But then again, that doesn't matter either. Because it's about the gospel, right? Amen? Amen. Okay. I read 2.8.9 for a purpose. It wasn't just to show this up here but it was to introduce us and to make sense out of chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, I implore you, I encourage you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. What calling is that? The calling of chapter 1, 2, and 3. The calling to be in Christ. The calling to be a part of the church, the body of Christ. And because of that, Paul says, now I want you to understand that if you if you really trust Christ, if you are in Christ, it's going to affect how you walk. And not only are you called to be in Christ, but you are now called to act and to live differently. <coughs> Amen? That means Jesus is not an insurance policy in our back pocket to pull out whenever we need him. He is a real person who lives and abides in us and we in Him. Ephesians 4.1 really answers the question, what is the proper response to such grace? That begs the question, that's what 4, 5, and 6 are all about. How then shall we live? What Paul writes in 4.1 is equivalent to Romans chapter 12 verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Therefore, after such a wonderful salvation, here is the only reasonable response to the gospel. To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. When you understand the gospel, it leaves you with one desire, and that is to worship God. To fall on your knees and to praise Him and to worship Him and to be in awe of Him and forever to be thankful to Him and to show that thanksgiving by beginning to be different, by beginning to walk a different kind of life. Ephesians the chapter 4, this word walk occurs throughout chapters 4 and 5. It means to be a equivalent. Okay, let's listen. to this. The word walk means to conduct one's life, to live one's life. It introduces verse 1, a new section. We'll begin to look at where to walk in unison, to walk in unity. But right now I want to give you this overview of chapters 4, 5, and 6 as we conclude. So follow with me. In verse 1, we read it, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Go to verse 17. This, so this I say, affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer the Gentiles walk. It means this. In verse 1 through 16, it means that we walk in unison. But in verse 17 through 32, it says we walk differently. Shear so now one with the church. You were never that way before. Verses 1 through 16. In 17 through 32, Paul says... You want to walk worthy of the gospel, you will begin to walk different than the world around you. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. We see this word again in verse 2. Verse 1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. There it is again. It's a loving walk. To be in Christ means it's a unified walk with other believers. To be in Christ means you're gonna, you're gonna live differently than those around you, than the world around you. But it also means you're gonna have a loving walk. And walk in love just as, Christ, what does that look like? Just as Christ also loved you, who gave himself up for us. When's the last time we gave ourselves up for somebody? For a wife, a husband, a child. When's the last time I gave up my pride, and swallowed it? When's the last time I swallowed my own opinion? in a gray area and embrace somebody else's because light of eternity really didn't matter. And I want to encourage them. It's not about me. I want to be about you. It's a great idea, Ted. Let's go with it, brother. Love you. I'll be with you 100%. The last time we've done that. Whatever kind of relationship. Well, we go on. We see verses 3 through 14 of chapter 5. Look at verse 8. Walk as children of light. What does that mean? In that context, you're going to live a moral life. So so we back up to chapter 4, verse 1, and Paul exhorts us and encourages us and urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of our calling, worthy of our adoption, worthy of being a child of God, worthy of God's grace. And he says, here's what it's going to look like. You're going to walk a unified walk. You're going to walk a different walk. You're gonna have a loving walk, and you're gonna have a moral walk, verses 3 through 10. Then you get to verse 15, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. It will be a wise walk as well. But you know what Paul does after that? Listen, hold on to your seats. He brings real life into it. Because he's gonna discuss, he will, he will emphasize those three major relationships on earth that you will have. Number one is marriage verse 22 through 33. Then with your children, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 6. And then with people on the job, verses 5 through 9. What's Paul saying? This could change who you are. This could change how you live, how you walk. What do what I mean by this? The gospel. The gospel changes us. That's what Paul's saying. This so is Paul saying, listen church, I am urging you as a father would his children and with the tender care of a mother for her children, I am urging you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. God has called you and adopted you to be his son, his daughter. Now he's calling you to walk like it. He's saying this, be who you are in Christ. So what you're saying, we have to refocus on what does that mean? And what does that look like in real life? How does that play itself out in my marriage? How does that play itself out in how I bring up my children? How does that play itself out at work with my coworkers and my bosses? What does that look like, God? That's exactly where Paul is going with this. But do doesn't stop just there. Good chapter 6, verse 10. Verse 10 through 17, he warns us. He says, "Women, finally, I want you to realize something. If you want to walk that direction, you want to walk worthy of the gospel, you are going to incur opposition every step of the way. And thus he warns us about spiritual warfare, what it's really going to be like. What is it going to take? What's it going to take? You, you fight God against flesh and blood. You're not fighting that co-worker. You're not fighting your husband. You're not fighting your wife. You're not fighting things or people. Your ultimate struggle is against what? Powers and principalities. You're in a spiritual warfare. Therefore, you will, as you're wanting to walk differently now, you're going to face struggle. You're, you're going to face barriers every step of the way. Some will be more difficult than others. But here's the point. Worthy is the Lamb. Here's the point. God, I'm doing it from this side of the cross. I'm not doing it to put anything over here. I'm doing this simply as a way to say, God, thank you for doing this. For giving me a big zero on the sin ledger and giving me the righteousness of Christ, which is his eternal righteous, satisfies your eternal wrath and anger so I can come to you just like Jesus does. Unhindered. Oh, but God, I'm going to blow it. Well, what do you do? god's word says you confess it you repent because you're going to struggle and as we struggle as a church as we struggle as individuals we struggle in our marriages we confess it to one another we confess it to god That's real life it's walking by grace but never with the attitude of i'm trying to merit favor with god you're doing it because god has already shown you favor that you never earned that god freely gave Because you put faith alone in Christ alone. Amen. Amen. And we're just walking the walk all the way to heaven. For me to live as Christ today. In my home, my marriage, my children, and at work. But guess what? One day that earthly walk's gonna stop. And to die is gonna begin. Simply the Christian life could be summed up as this. God, thank you. Thank you for your infinite and marvelous grace that I found in Jesus Christ that you opened up my eyes to. And I embraced Christ. Now I want to walk. I live a life worthy of Christ. Amen? So, live the gospel this evening in your marriage. Think about the gospel living out with your children. You're going to work tomorrow morning, almost everybody You're going to school or whatever. Yeah. Take this with you. Take what God has already done for you with you. The gospel is not something you just did when you were small and you went forward. The gospel is to be lived and enjoyed every day. So that when those difficult times come at work or even at home, to live worthy. Amen? The power of the gospel. This is why we preach the word. This is why we protect, guard the gospel of grace. Because it brings life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this simple, simple message. God, I pray that we would just constantly being in your word, constantly allowing it to saturate. We want to be sponges, more God. And not just damp, but we want to be soaked. So that when something happens at work or something happens in our marriage or at home or anywhere, God, God we see the gospel, we see the truths of your word beginning to flow from us in action, in thought, in deed, in words. Because God, we want to walk in your grace. We want to live a life that says thank you for what you have done for us. God forgive us whenever we had that mindset of wanting to earn something or earn your favor. Or you become a better person. It's about being who you've already made us to be. It's about being who we are in Christ. So God, thank you. Oh God, may the riches of your glory and the riches of your grace just penetrate our hearts each and every time we're in your word.